Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show i want to know how to set up a food company from beginning to end from scratch. Because my friend Bill Glazer, he set up Outstanding Foods, which is vegan snacks. He's been a vegan all his life. He wanted to create a vegan snack that was delicious enough to be in the regular snack aisle instead of the vegan aisle, which, let's be honest, the snacks aren't as good. So that was his goal. And from scratch, you know, he gets the chef, figures out the formula, makes the snacks, figured out how to package them up and send them. And now there's for sale in Walmart, 7-Eleven, Target, I don't know, all the places that it's up, Whole Foods. So let's hear how he did it. Because a lot of the times on these Side Hustle Fridays, we talk about businesses that are digital products, like online newsletters or online courses, or you know, even ghostwriting is sort of a digital product. But I'm always curious about people who make things and actually sell them. So without further ado, Side Hustle Fridays, how to make your own food empire from scratch. You have been doing remarkably well with your company on the business side. Like one thing I will say about my kids, they called me the other day and they were like, daddy, get us more of the... I think it was the, not the pork rinds, but the um, other chips. The, the, what was the first one? I forget the, I forget. Oh, the, yeah. The first one we had was pig out pigless bacon chips. Yes. And those. 
Yeah. Now we have pig out pigless pork rinds. We have takeout meal in a bag puffs. And we just launched a new product, our pig out pigless bacon seasonings that you could sprinkle on or add into your favorite recipes, make everything taste like bacon, but 100% plant-based. So it's 100% plant-based. And I remember from the very beginning, your goal was to not be in the plant-based snacks aisle. You wanted to be with the grown-up snacks, so to speak, because quite honestly, historically, plant-based snacks have not tasted good. Now, people will argue and say, no, no, uh, you haven't tried these quinoa chips or whatever, and they just don't taste as good. I'm here, here, I'm holding in my hands right now, white truffle and sea salt potato chips. That's unbelievably good. Yeah. But your chips, this was your goal from the beginning, to make plant-based chips that were better than the regular snacks. And you did it. Like I get, I can't even order them too much because I gained 10 pounds. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I love them so much. They really. James, our products make you lose weight. Our products make <laughs> you lose weight. You're not supposed to eat all the other crap. Maybe that's contributing to the weight. No, that, that's probably true. I just, I just eat them nonstop. That's the thing. But I remember from the beginning and I was always fascinated. I, this is what I wanted to talk to you about, which is I'm really fascinated by people who make things. And it's like almost inconceivable to me in this like world of, you know, every entrepreneur is making an app or a Tinder for X or whatever. And you went ahead and made a plant-based food company that is, what are some of the stats right now? Like what, what stores are you in? Uh, we're in um, 7-Eleven, we're in Kroger, we're in Walmart, we're in Whole Foods, we're in, uh, our retail distribution has been growing and we've been selling also direct to consumer not only as a way to have a relationship and ability to offer products that are great tasting and nutritious and that people can get safely delivered to their home, especially in the current environment, but really as a way also of generating mass awareness that has led to strong in-store sales. Our ads, since we began in February, 2020, our ads have been seen more than 200 million times. And so- what? Wait, where do, um, where do you, okay, so where do you, what kind of ads do you do? Where do you advertise? And then I want to get into the whole thing, like how do you make a food company from scratch, which is what you did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we started, we were using direct-to-consumer as the centerpiece of our marketing strategy for the reasons I just mentioned. We wanted to have a relationship with our customers, sell direct to them, but also create awareness that leads to in-store sales. And so we started in February when you and I could have been in person together where people were traveling didn't we get together in February? I think we did. We did. Yes, yeah. we did. And we, we actually did get together. Yeah. And, um, and you were uh, accurately predicting what was about to unfold. You, you, were, you were probably more so than anyone else. Yes. In some ways, you know, the, the timing was very fortuitous for us. We couldn't have planned this. But in March, when the pandemic really started to hit and there were initial lockdowns, a lot of advertisers stopped advertising on Facebook and Instagram because no one was going to be buying a car in the middle of a pandemic, no one was getting on a plane and traveling uh, and taking vacations. So a lot of the traditional advertisers, the, the travel companies, the auto companies, luxury goods, they all stopped advertising. So it became very cheap for companies like us to advertise on Facebook and Instagram while people were also seeking food products safely delivered at home. They didn't want to wait in the lines. They didn't want to get out in the crowds. And so the perfect storm of our launch happened amidst the beginning of a pandemic, and we were providing a solution for a lot of consumers to give them really great tasting, delicious snacks, which a lot of people were 
becoming more uh, snack oriented when you're sitting at home and you have nothing else to do, but also nutritious. And so changing consumer behavior to seeking products delivered at home, the cheaper advertising all led to a pretty fast takeoff of our brand and our product. And unfortunately, people love it and kept coming back for more. And so now, like, how do you get, I'm sort of doing this in, in a weird order, but because I want to ask, like, how do you make the product? But how do you get into like a Walmart or a 7-Eleven? It seems like, like my, my fear of Walmart, if I were to make a product, is that Walmart could just say, hey, we'll pay one penny more than your cost. Take it or leave it. Yeah, Walmart, you know, can be a tricky market for a lot of retail product companies because if they're undercutting the price where you're being sold elsewhere, that could potentially damage your your other types of distribution. And, and oftentimes, if you get into a big box retailer, sometimes you have too much exposure to one market that if anything changed, it can adjust your sales in a in a meaningful way. You could also do the, the opposite on the positive side where it could add a big boost to your sales. But for us, you know, we're, we're very mindful of selling at prices that are fairly uniformed across the board, even at the Walmart. So uh, with the type of product we have, we have the margin to sell at a reasonable price for the Walmart shopper, but those prices are fairly similar and consistent to shoppers at other stores as well. And so how do you land a Walmart? Well, we have a VP of sales and usually you have a sales team, but a lot of startups will handle it themselves. And that's perfectly fine. I think, you know, just like anything, you always have to differentiate yourself, whether you're in food or whether you're in any type of company, what is unique and different about your product. I think what the food industry suffered from for many years was very incremental changes. People are like you just mentioned, truffle, potato chips, all types of ways that people could change a flavor of a potato chip, right? or reduce the oil a little bit, or just make some nuanced change or use an ingredient that no one's ever heard of. But at the end of the day, it's a potato chip with just something else on it, right? There's not too many, those things don't make retailers all that excited because it's just the same product, just a little bit different flavor or, or nuanced change. What we try to do is really differentiate our products and make them innovative and types of products that have never existed before that not only make the value proposition more compelling to the stores, but also to the consumers. And that's the combination that whether you have a VP of sales or whether you're a startup founder knocking on doors yourself, those are the types of things that are going to get you more attention. And in particular with a food product, it's got to taste great. So if you have something that tastes great and is innovative, that's the key. You know, it's very interesting that you say the stores were not looking for incremental changes. I think in general, this is like the VHS Betamax issue. Like remember back, it's like 20 or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, there were two types of video recording cassettes, VHS and Sony's Betamax. Betamax was technically better. I don't know how they judge that, but everybody tells me it was better, but VHS won. And I think it's because consumers really aren't aware or don't care if something's 10% better than something else. They only really notice when it's like 10 times better than something else. Like you have to really be different to stand out. You, you can't say, look, we're 20% better than our competitor. No one cares. It doesn't really matter. And that's partially subjective anyway, but 10 times better is not subjective. Like your product, A, you're plant-based, that's not subjective. And if people say this is plant-based and tastes better, 
now you're like 10x better. You know, you're, you're, you've got this nutritious quality and it tastes better. And I think about this in terms of like even podcasts. I can't say, oh, I'm a better interviewer than so-and-so. Why don't I get downloads? It's not good enough to be 20% better. Nobody cares. No one notices. See, you have, I think no matter what you do, you have to have a unique stamp that you're putting on it, no matter what area of competition or entrepreneurship or whatever. So when you first started this business, I know you've been into plant-based foods since you were a kid. First of all, were you into plant-based food? You were a vegan since you were a kid, right? Well, for 30 years. I mean, if you want to call it as a kid 30 years ago, I'll take it. But uh, for, for over 30 years, I think it's now about 31 years but as a kid, I stopped eating certain meats. I was a, I'm a very visual person. So if I would see a leg or an eye on my plate, it would freak me out. And so I didn't know what vegan or vegetarian was. I just stopped eating certain meats that look like the animals. And then I was left with nothing. And I didn't, I didn't even know what the word vegan was. I just stopped eating meat and dairy and started eating more plant-based foods. And 30 years ago, you would be lucky if you got like a powdered thing that you mixed with water that was supposed to be some kind of plant-based ground beef. Now with Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and countless others, they're virtually indistinguishable between the actual meat that they're replacing and better for us, better for the environment, and of course, better for the cows and the, and the, and the chickens that don't become the meat. Sure. And so basically 25 years, 26, 27 years after you started eating fewer and fewer meats and more and more plant-based foods, you start this company. What was the initial, why now? Like what, what was the initial vision? Like how did you create the first food? I remember when you were pitching it around and you, the chef, uh, I think chef Dave is, uh, that's his name. Yep. He, uh, he cooked a big Mac pasta, bacon, and ice cream. And it was all plant-based and no dairy, no meat, nothing. It was fantastic. It was like the best meal I've ever had. Yeah, so I am fortunate enough to be co-founders with Chef Dave Anderson, who is a true smoke coming out of the ear type of genius. His brain, he's a classically trained French chef, but also his brain works very much like a scientist in understanding the chemical composition of the meat and the dairy and how to replace it using plant-based ingredients. So he's been an iconic figure in the space. He led product development at Beyond Meat for four and a half years, did all their early stage product development, including leading the team that developed the Beyond Burger. And before that, he co-founded Hampton Creek, which is now called Just Foods, another little billion dollar plant-based company. Um, so I've had the benefit of having a genius formulator that uh, did all of our products and does all of our products. And he and I had known each other and we talked about doing something together. And when the timing was right, that's how Outstanding came together. But, you know, for any entrepreneur, you don't have to be a, uh, a, a food scientist or a chef to create a food company. You don't have to be a computer scientist to create a, a software or an app. Um, you, you just have to have a good idea and then find the right people that can help execute on those ideas. But to have a good idea in a, in a competitive space and no matter what the food space is competitive, you still have to really, so, so chef Dave had the skills obviously of cooking and he'd been in the space, but I think for you, you still needed to understand really deeply what was out there. And you know, the fact that you were a plant-based eater was a good sign. So that if the food was good enough for you, then you knew you didn't, that was a, a, a shortcut to validating the product to some extent. 
Yeah, well, the way we look at products as a company is we look at the behavior that already exists and we look at where the problem is that we could solve a problem for and, and find a solution for. We don't try to just put things together in a kitchen and then see if people like them. We, we start with what is the problem and how can we solve it first and what is the behavior? We don't want to change people's behavior in order to eat our products. You started saying that we didn't want to be in the plant-based aisle. We, we had had some ideas of different products that we would have landed in the plant-based meat aisle in stores. There's a shifting paradigm where more plant-based products are being sold in the meat and the dairy aisle. But most of the consumers that shop in the plant-based meat aisle are vegans and vegetarians already. And if you're trying to reach mainstream consumers and make an impact, you have to go where they shop, not try to change their habit. That's an uphill battle. What was the problem? Was the problem that there weren't good tasting plant-based foods or what, what was the actual problem you were going to solve? Well, in better for you or healthy foods, whether they're plant-based or not, if you have a healthy product and the value proposition is the health and the nutrition, whether it's protein, whether it's different nutrients for a food product, it still has to taste great. If it doesn't taste great, then people won't stick with it. They might be appealed by how much protein something has, how many nutrients it has. If it doesn't taste good, there's no second purchase. And so with food, you have to always lead with taste because if it doesn't taste good, you're not going to want to eat it no matter what, whether it's replacing a meat or a dairy product or whether it's any type of product. If, it's, if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter what else it does. When I think of the mainstream consumer, which includes me, it's not like I make most of my food decisions based on health. I really do make it based on taste with a little bit consideration towards you know, health. Like I don't want to eat unhealthy, but it's not like health is my first, it probably should be my first priority, but I do like to buy good tasting things. And that, that's for everyone really, because, you know, I, I, as someone who's eaten plant-based over 30 years, when the energy bar market was really taking off, now it's very crowded space, but the first plant-based energy bar that had the nutrients of a meal, I was so psyched to buy it. I heard about this product that was coming out. I kept calling the store. Do you have it yet? Do you have it yet? When they finally had it, I bought two boxes. It was this green superfood energy bar, all plant-based. I was so excited. I took it home. I took one bite. It was horrible. And I completely threw it out and I threw out the two boxes. Did that company make it? Did they survive? I don't, you know, I don't, I've never seen that product again. So I don't know if they have other products, but that product was here and gone pretty quickly. And I'm sure my experience was the similar experience with other people. And so that, that value prop that it had from the health standpoint got me very excited, but it didn't taste good and I was gone. And so with a food product, you have to lead with taste. And so what we did was we looked at not only Dave, my co-founder has the ability to create great tasting foods, but we looked at where can we improve in a significant way the nutrients or the types of products. So the first product that we launched this year uh, or in 2020 was our pig out pigless pork rind. It's got seven grams of protein per ounce. The biggest amount of protein per ounce in the plant-based space was hippies before us at four grams an ounce. So we made a paradigm shift of the amount of protein because we saw that not only do people want to get protein, especially if they're eating more plant-based foods from convenient foods, but Many people in fitness, they, they're drinking the same boring smoothies and energy bars all the time that we created a product that had a completely different use case that after you work out, you could eat a bag of snacks and not only get the experience and the taste of a, of a great tasting snack you love, but also get the protein you need. 
And that was the impetus for that. How did you get the protein? And also, is it high quality protein? Like, is it, you know, there's, I, from what I understand, there's like whey protein, there's other kinds of protein. What's the quality spectrum like? Yes, it's a very high quality protein. We're using pea protein is a big part of that. Pea protein you're finding in Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, a lot of plant-based food products because it's a high quality protein. It's got all of the essential amino acids. It's a complete protein and it's malleable. So it could be used in different products. It could be, it could be used in a, in a chewy textured burger or it could be used in a crispy snack food like our pig out pigless pork rinds. And so what did he do? So he, he, he knew how to make this. He made it, you tasted it. I even probably tasted the first few products. It all tasted great. How do you mass produce that? Like, let's say I had an idea for a food product. I wanted to make James's animal crackers for people who like to eat animals, but <laughs> just want to eat them as an, a cracker. What would I do to mass produce a food? So most food product companies, whether you're a company that is selling at your local farmer's market or whether you're selling a product, package product at Walmart, start in a kitchen and they start in a kitchen with a food formulator, whether that's a chef or whether that's a product formulator or both, and then create the product. Then what you typically do is you go to a food manufacturer, often called a co-packer. For smaller companies, there are commercial kitchens available for rent. There's a, a trend now where you can rent a commercial kitchen per the time you need, not lock into a long-term lease. Those are more flexible commercial kitchens that allow a new entrepreneur to limit their costs on production and create products in, in, a, in a commercially approved kitchen. You, you, if you're you know, a very small one-person operation, you can make food in your, in your home kitchen. Uh, you have to check the, the local regulations. Um, many counties and, and states will allow you to make in your home kitchen, but it's got to express that on the packaging. But for bigger distribution, you're required to go to food production facilities that are regulated and that follow all the regulations according to food production. So you can get a co-packer for just about any type of product, whether it's a snack food, whether it's a jerky, whether it's a burger or whatever it is. There are companies that exist that are making products for other companies. They supply the ingredients most of the time and they're handling the manufacturing. You're doing the formulation the packaging, and then of course the marketing and the distribution. And do they match the formula exactly as you tell them? There's usually, when you go into R&D on a food product, there are usually many changes that happen from that version to the version that goes to shelves because you need to be mindful of the shelf life, the packaging that is used to help extend the shelf life. We have in our bags, we have one year shelf life. Um, and there are bags that you could use that will give you shorter or longer shelf life. And some of the ingredients to keep a product on the shelf for a longer period of time are also things that need to be adjusted when you go from test kitchen to commercial product production. So you send to a co-packer, they make roughly the formula and they package it in a bag that you choose. Like, let's say I, I'm buying a bag of crackers or cookies or whatever for $2. What do you think it costs the co-packer to make that bag? Yeah, typically for retail-oriented foods, you want to have a cost that's about 25% of the retail price. So that's usually the target. A lot of food products are less or more than that, but that's usually a target. So if you're selling a product 
at retail for $2, you want to produce it for about 50 cents because then you would sell it on a wholesale basis to the store at a dollar and then it'll mark it up to $2. Is there a distribution company that sends it to all the Walmarts, all the 7-Elevens, all the Whole Foods? Like, is there another layer in the middle? Yes, typically in the food space, there are distributors. There are distributors in the natural market, in the conventional market. There are distributors for some of the big box retailers. Some of them own their own distribution companies. Uh, and then there are a whole array of independent distributors that go to more of the mom and pop stores and independents and gas stations. There's food service to get into the Starbucks and grab and go and, and a variety of, so there's, there are a lot of distributors, there are food brokers and, you know, like any other business, if I, I had not been in food before I started outstanding food. So for a lot of these things that I'm talking, I had to figure out, I had to learn and a lot of the, the pathway along the way are, are making adjustments and finding the right fits. And when you don't have the right fit, making a, an adjustment and, and learning from that experience and then figuring out what the best fit is. So like, let's say uh, you're selling a, a bag of something for $2, which means you produced it for 50 cents and you're going to sell it wholesale ultimately for a dollar. How much do the middlemen take between that 50 cents and a dollar? Yeah, it's usually relatively small percentage. It, it, it should be no more than 15%. A lot of times it's less than 10% or even lower. Like anything, it's going to be how much volume you're selling. So the more volume you have, the more you can negotiate lower rates the better you're going to get economies of scale when you're manufacturing and produce it for lower than that 50 cent cost in your example. So the more production and the more demand you can create and, and product you can sell, then you could negotiate better rates with distributors, get better rates with your manufacturer, with your ingredient supplier, even with things like your packaging supplier and your boxes that you're using. So the more volume you do, the better your costs become and the lower the percentages that you have to pay out as well. One time I was invested in a protein energy drink and it tasted good. It had like a lot of protein in the drink and it was high quality protein and they were getting, starting to get orders, but because they were getting so many orders, I never quite understood this, but because they were starting to get so many orders, that's when they went out of business because <laughs> they couldn't really meet the demand and they weren't able to raise money for whatever reason. I mean, I was a small investor and you know, they just caved in. They, they weren't able to survive. Like what mistake did this person make that you're not making? One thing in any retail distribution business is the difference between when you lay out the cash and when you receive the cash. And so when you're manufacturing a product, especially at the early stages, you're typically having to come out of pocket for the ingredient costs, the packaging costs, and the manufacturing costs. And often that will sit in a warehouse after it's produced, before it gets shipped to the stores. Once it gets shipped to the stores, it's first going to a distribution center, then it's going to the stores, then your accounts receivable will kick in. And often, depending on the industry you're in, it could be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. So that gap, which at the most minimum is usually 60 days where you have an outlay of cash before you're getting your cash back, but often it's even more than that. For a lot of companies, that the, the way to fill that gap is one of two ways. One is you raise capital to have the resources to be able to produce the product and build inventory before you get paid on it. The other is direct to consumer. Direct to consumer minimizes that 
gap in cash flow of accounts payable and accounts receivable. When you sell a product online, you're getting paid from the credit card company, usually within the next day or two days or at the most a few days. And so what percentage of sales right now would you say, or at least how has it changed in terms of direct-to-consumer versus uh, the Walmarts and 7-Elevens of the world? Well, direct-to-consumer, you can make a product and sell it right away. With retail, the smaller retail stores, the independents or regions of larger chains, they're more nimble to make a decision to put a new product on their shelf. Again, whether that's in food or any other category, the larger retailers, they plan their shelf space many months in advance, often nine or 12 months in advance. So you have to go through a longer sales cycle to get into the Walmarts or National Whole Foods or Kroger or others. And so you're producing a product and then you're selling it, but it's not going on the shelves in a lot of cases for nine months or a year. On direct-to-consumer, you produce the product even before it's in your warehouse, you could start selling it. So you have the ability, if your advertising and your product works well, you have the ability to sell a product much quicker than you can on retail distribution. So like when you amped up your Facebook ads in March of last year, you were able to ramp up direct to consumer pretty quickly from that? Like, yes. did you find that every dollar you spent on ads, you were making more than a dollar in, did it take a lot of AB testing to figure out the right ads and the right places? And like, how did you target? Yeah, we, we tested, we targeted, we, uh, February of 2020 was the month we launched in direct to consumer. So we tested different package configurations, different offers, whether it was full price or at a discount, we tested different marketing messaging and it started to penetrate and real and work pretty quickly. And so we rolled it out and continued to make adjustments, but really rolled it out and amped it up in, in March and, and continued to progress. And the timing for us was fortuitous, as I mentioned, where the costs were lower and we could sell products that were, were less expensive at that time as well. Later, when everyone else started seeing that the consumer behavior was changing and people were seeking more products delivered at home, especially food products, they started pivoting into direct-to-consumer. So you're seeing now a lot more food and beverage companies and other types of companies that historically weren't direct-to-consumer companies getting into direct-to-consumer, including some of the larger ones. Uh, and that has driven up costs. A lot of the advertisers that were on the shelf at the early part of the pandemic have come back. So costs have gone up. So you have to find more ways to differentiate your product in the current environment. You have to find more ways to find people where they are. And, and for us, we started in Facebook and Instagram. We've now diversified into podcast advertising, into influencer advertising. We have many celebrity and influencer investors that we've utilized in our ads, but now we're using other influencers to help promote our products and reach people where they are spending their time online. Is it worth it? Like do influencers actually influence like, and so there's, let's say there's two types of influencers. There's influencers who are like Instagram influencers that they became famous through the, the platform. And then there are people like, you know, I know Snoop Dogg is involved in the company, uh, where he's famous from something else, but then has become a big influencer. So how is like that relationship worked out for instance? Yeah. You, you know, the influencer market is much more competitive in the past on Instagram just a handful of years ago. If a celebrity or, or an influencer with a large following promoted a product, it almost certainly got a, a big bump in sales. 
Now consumers have become much more sophisticated. They know when celebrities or influencers are getting free boxes uh, that they post in their Instagram stories or, or on social media. They know when someone has many, many product endorsement deals and they're getting paid by multiple companies. And they also know what's authentic to that person. So if they see a person that's just promoting something that they got for free or, or is getting paid, they're often not as responsive consumers. But if they see someone that even if they're getting paid is very authentic, they really love a product, they're using it more regularly and posting about it more regularly, and people can sense that, then they're much more responsive. So I think for brands, you have to be much more savvy in finding influencers, whether they're big influencers or micro influencers that are really connected to your type of product and that it, and they really love it and are, and are authentic about loving it. And I think that's, you know, a, a big key in how you use influencers and structuring the relationships where you're mitigating the risk. If you get into a long-term relationship with a big celebrity that you pay a lot of money and it doesn't work, you're out that money. But if you do a test and then it works, whether it's a small influencer or a big one, then you could ramp it up. And if it doesn't work, then you move on and you, you try to find the better fits. Well, what's the best type of influencer that's worked for you so far? We found fitness influencers work really well, and in particular, those that are moms. Um, so, you know, we, we have a product called Takeout Puffs. Uh, it's got all the nutrients of a meal if you eat the whole bag. And it solves a problem not only for guilt-free snacking, where you're not just getting a bomb of salt and fat and wasted calories like most snacks have, but a lot of us will eat on the go, whether you're a busy entrepreneur or a mom, and you end up eating a bag of chips, sometimes accidentally, uh, and it becomes your meal. And so we actually have a product that solves that problem where it's got all the nutrients of a meal. And so we find that uh, moms really love our product because it's the first product that they don't have to make a trade-off with their kids. Kids usually want the crap, the things that taste great, but have all the, the crappy ingredients in it. And the parents want them to eat something healthy. And there's never been something that solves both of their needs. So um, we're finding that moms are a big part of our audience and, and fitness um, personalities that um, are eating healthy snacks and eating protein-infused uh, snacks. And so we, we found a, a really good fit with those two segments in particular. Uh, can you name any of the influencers? Can you say who some of them are? Yeah, well, we have one of our investors is named Autumn Calabrese. She's one of the biggest uh, personalities of Beachbody. Um, I think outside of P90X, her programs have been the, the best selling. And she's got a 12-year-old son that um, is clamorous for our products all the time. And, and when she posts in her stories, her, her fan base is extremely responsive. And we always generate more sales when she does that than, say, some of the bigger celebrities that we have. Daniela Monet is one of our investors, and she's a mom. And moms in particular, you know, in the pandemic, a lot of single people have all these hobbies that um, they've had time for. They're cooking more at home. They're, um, they're, they're taking on more hobbies. Parents with kids have far less time than they've ever had because their kids are at home. They're on Zoom. They need their parents' attention all the time. And so parents don't have the, the, the time um, or even the desire now to, to go in the kitchen and cook a meal. So to be able to grab a snack that you're getting nutrients from, and even if you eat the whole bag, a full meal, um, those are real problem solvers, especially in the current environment. So people like Daniela Monet, who's a mom, uh, have really appreciated our product, and so has our audience. 
if I was going to start from scratch, like a food company to compete with you, planning my formulas in the kitchen right now. So the first thing would be find sort of an empty space in the food industry. I don't even know what that might be. Uh, like if you were to start a new food company right now, what would you, what would you consider looking into? Obviously you're doing it. So I don't know what new thing I'm trying to think, what would be a good new food? I'll think of it later, but let's say I think of it. Then I would come up with the formula. I find a co-packer. I start, I would start doing direct to consumer retail. Then I have a sales track record to show the Walmarts, the 7-Elevens, the Whole Foods and so on. Use the sales track record to kind of get shelf space six, nine, 12 months out and then manage my financing so I can build appropriately and still keep on rolling out new features. Oh, and also I would do some sort of uh, influencer style marketing, preferably for like, like you say, like a test or for an exchange for some equity, not like an exchange for a lot of dollars. Yeah, I think it's a strategy that we started with. I had experience in direct response. I, I had a company where we used 30 minute infomercials back in the day. And at that time, you would always see the bigger stores show those products that were advertised on infomercials most prominently in their store. You would always see as seen on TV and you'd see those products at checkout in the center aisles, in their circulars. So th those retailers knew that if a company was spending money in media, back then it was infomercials, radio, TV commercials, now it's online and social media. But if a company was spending media, that meant that people most likely had more of an awareness than a new product that would sit on their shelves and be less likely to jump off the shelves. So if you have a direct-to-consumer strategy now in food or in any other business and it's successful, then that's going to give you leverage to get into retailers. You, you're still going to sell the retailer on why your product is unique and differentiated and why it should be on their shelves. But if you could show that you already have a following and people already have been successfully responding to your marketing campaigns, uh, retailers love that. Retailers, that's going to make it easier to get in, into those stores. We, we've gotten into bigger stores earlier in our growth because of that, and, and other companies can as well. So I have, I have a couple ideas for you. We'll take, take them or leave them. You should do the Outstanding Foods Cookbook because then you'll get in the bookstores. So people will see you or, or on Amazon books or, you know, cause people aren't going to bookstores as much anymore, but then it's a, like, just for like how the Moosewood cookbook kind of opened up being a vegetarian to so many people. And then the Moosewood products followed into the stores when they realized they, they caught fire. You must've looked at our product roadmap because that's in there. And we, we actually just launched a new product, our pig out pigless bacon seasonings. And it comes with a free ebook that chef Dave created a whole bunch of recipes that you could use the seasonings and bring that great taste of bacon that's plant-based into all of your favorite foods. Oh my God, you should do the great vegan bake-off. That's an idea. You could even do that like on YouTube or make a TikTok version. Like you don't have to do a whole produced show, but do like the great vegan bake-off, do a contest even, give $10,000 to, you know, and some assignments to six people. And then you have TikTok videos of each of them creating their vegan cupcakes or whatever, you know, sponsored by Outstanding Foods. Done. I, and in fact, uh, the way I heard it was you're going to donate the 10,000 for the <laughs> award. And I, I think we might even have some witnesses that are listening that will verify that, but uh, I love it. Well, let's do it. All right. And then so, oh, another one, have you ever thought of doing like 
now that you have, and it might be a different type of distribution chain, but what about other plant-based types of products like makeup or cosmetic products? We're staying with food. We do have, we're right now focused on snack foods and other shelf stable products that we have in our product roadmap. And we're going to stay with food uh, with the exception of ancillary things that might be connected like a cookbook or even some media. Um, but yeah, there are, there are plenty of opportunities now. There, there are fast changing consumer behavior and, and it's not driven necessarily by people who are all becoming vegan or vegetarian. Uh, the biggest growth in the market are people who are flexitarian seeking out more plant-based foods, but people in other categories are seeking more natural products. Skin and hair is a, is a fast growing arena, multi-billion dollar arena where plant-based products are becoming more in vogue, more clean ingredients, less of the chemicals are also becoming more in vogue. Consumers are much more conscious and aware of what they're putting in their body and on their body. And so there's a growing demand for those types of products. It's not something we plan to get into, but it's wide open and very fast growing demand in, in that space. And, you know, one thing that's both a, a good thing and a bad thing is that everybody now is buying online. They're not going to the local store. And this is kind of a long-term macro problem for cities and towns and so on, where money used to circulate locally before it would eventually disappear onto the internet. But now you get paid and it instantly goes to Amazon. Do you think this has become a habit of people or a lifestyle in the sense that is this going to, when things eventually, when people, when stores start to reopen uh, more fully, more confidently, they're not going to be shut down and consumers start risking going to stores again. And or, will they order less from Amazon? Or do you think that lifestyle is, is here to stay? It's a mix of both. I think Partly people appreciate the convenience and that's been a growing trend even before the pandemic where people are buying all sorts of products at home and, and in particular during the pandemic where they don't want to wait in those lines, they don't want to be in the crowds, so they've been shopping online even more. But as a result of doing that, that's becoming a new habit for many people. Many people are using the Instacarts and, and the Amazons to get their groceries and that will continue. Uh, there, there will definitely be people though that go back to the stores in droves. There are certain experiences you have and even time, even, even though it, it sounds like all right, you get in your car or you get on a public transportation, then you go to a store that might sound time consuming. It's not the easiest thing for multiple. If you're, if you're shopping for groceries or, or lots of other products, seeing them in person often is a lot easier and you could be more selective of what you're buying than, than searching or looking at products one by one. If you're buying just one thing, it's easy. If you're buying multiple things at once, you know, even going to the Instacarts, unless you're hitting just reorder, it often takes 20, 30 minutes just to go through that whole process. And then you still are wondering, what did I miss? What are the products that I usually buy that I didn't find here that when you're in the store, you do see? So I, I think there will be definitely some of the behavior that has amped up in terms of buying things online that will continue but also a lot of people going back to the stores for the convenience of knowing what they want and seeing things that they might not see when they're just on a page online. You know, you know what I miss is that, and, and like everyone else, I've been buying everything online and I love it. I love not, I love the convenience. I don't ever want to go to a store again, except there's one thing I miss, which you kind of realize in this pandemic, the odd little nuanced things that arise when you're no longer doing it. But I miss going with my kids to a bookstore. 
because it's like a bonding thing with the kids. Uh, like you see what books they like, you talk about the books, you have like a coffee in the cafe and you read together. So that part of the shopping experience, like getting to know my kids in a different way, I miss. But the actual shopping itself, I could do that all online. I don't care at all. But it sounds like you've got, so this was basically beginning to end of setting up the beginnings of a food empire. And uh, uh, thank you for answering all my questions, Bill. Well, my pleasure, and um, I, we're we're really excited about what we're doing, and and not just the growth we're experiencing, but really making it easy for people to eat more plant based and healthy products that they love, and uh, making it easy for for people to incorporate them in their diet. Will you make a, a burger? Like, do you, do you think that space is crowded with the Impossible Group Burger, the Beyond Burger? Yeah, it's not in our immediate roadmap right now, but I think the space is still wide open, even though there are some dominant early players. There's always in burgeoning spaces, dominant players that start out, but then over time can change. We've seen that with the blockbusters of the world and the Netflixes and, and countless other industries where the, the new players don't always become the sustainable players. Um, but I think there's a, a growing trend now in, in the plant-based space where first it was really very much about matching taste and texture to the meat and the dairy. Now it's about um, using more clean and health-inspiring ingredients, and I think that's going to be the next trend. So, you know, for those out there that can create a burger that is using more health-inspiring ingredients, then I think you're going to have a bigger opportunity of capturing market share and doing innovative things, even even if there are players out there that in whatever space are seem to be dominant, there's always an opportunity if you have something unique and you can position it in a way that you're solving a problem for consumers. And is technology a competitor? So like, do you worry about things like Memphis meats, which do stem cell grown meats that are arguably vegetarian, even though they're actual meat? Yeah, I think, you know, the way I look at things, there's room for everyone and there's different paths that different companies are taking and how they're approaching it. And you know, whether those lab-grown meats become adopted by consumers is, is to be determined and whether they can grow uh, textures that uh, are, are what people are used to. It's, it's hard to replicate muscle when in a lab, uh, but there are companies that are, you know, at the forefront of, of trying to figure that out and, and are making a lot of progress. So, you know, I think there's room for every type of approach. Uh, a lot of the venture capitalists are making bets across the board in lots of different types of food companies that are disrupting animal agriculture in particular for the environmental benefits of avoiding the animal agriculture that contributes to greenhouse gases in a big way. But there's room for a lot of people and it will just shake out which ones are the ones that consumers gravitate towards and which ones are producing products that are aligned with consumer demand. Well, Bill, once again, thank you for answering all my questions. Now I can start my own food company and good luck with outstanding foods. I'm going to start fantastic foods. Inc. <laughs> All right, I'll look, I'll look for your hostile takeover win. soon. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll do the great vegan bake off. <laughs> so, yeah. Keep your own 10,000 for your own contest. Right. Right. Uh, well, thanks again, Bill. Thanks James. Appreciate it. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. 
because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle, follow your crave.